covers arts and architecture since 1987, bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. Excuse me, does this do anything for you? How about this? Or this? Because this is the sort of thing we play in Adagio. Slowed down bluesy jazz. So dial us up. Tuesday evenings at 6. You might like it. You might even hear something that really moves you. This hour of boat talk is made possible in part by Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for over 20 years. Near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net. It's coming up on 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague is up next. Well, good morning, good morning. It's uh, second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock, time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 102.9, up to Bangor. Boat Talk is a uh, call-in radio show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, two old boat carpenters who seem to know what they're talking about. Today we're going to... <laughs> Today we're going to... Um, delve into a, uh, an interesting marine subject. We're going to bring the ark to archaeology. He's the punny one, obviously. Uh, I run into an article in the uh, Bulletin of the Maine Archaeological Society about some stuff, arch- uh, archaic uh, Stone Age tools found off of the end of Mount Desert Island underwater. And that's led us to a fellow named Franklin Price, who's down in North Carolina. We hope to talk to him this morning, about 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, yeah, we're gonna go, we're gonna go under the water today. Yeah, but as usual, we have uh, just way too many things to talk about, in my opinion. Yeah, yes, we do have some little short items. I guess we should probably get to first before we head to the beer bottom. Always wondered uh, what we we're gonna do in February, but I tell you what, boat talk is just an embarrassment of riches. And uh, you know, if if uh, you've got anything that you'd like to add to the uh, that's true. The conversation is calling show. We thought it might go a little light on the calls this morning, so we can uh, get to our guest. You know and and uh, hopefully fit it all in. But the phone number, as always, is one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Now, last month, the Boat of the Month was a brand-new one uh, that uh, oh, uh, Ellis is building for Billy Joel. Oh, yes, I've seen that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Different. It's, uh, it's kind of a – it looks like it should come from a, a comic book of the uh, – the magic Marvel days of the 40s and 50s, you know, it's it's kind of a sleek-looking boat, and the uh, the front of the cabin house curls up, uh, sort of sort of like a uh, ooh, a radius ooh, ooh. a radius up from ooh. the deck to the top. It, ooh, yeah, it's very. Uh, I love the quote from Donnie Ellis last month that says that Bunker and Ellis, uh, his dad and, and Raymond Bunker, who uh, you know founded all those designs, would have hated it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it's probably. But I, yeah, but anyway, and Billy Joel was uh, big in the design of that. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The boat of the month this month is a uh, Navy boat just launched down to Hodgson Brothers in East Booth Bay, uh, known for fabulously, uh, you know, uh, fabulous large yachts. They um, threw uh, $14 million of earmarks 
put up by our lovely uh, Senate delegation. Uh, they got, uh, you know, funding for this uh, pilot project, which is for an 83-foot uh, uh, SEAL patrol vehicle. And the old ones used to be made out of aluminum, and they go like 60 knots, okay? And people were getting slammed pretty hard, and those boats are very unforgiving. They estimate the force on a Navy SEAL, even on a shock-absorbing seat on one of those aluminum boats, to be up to 20 Gs. Okay. You, you, when you said SEAL, I was thinking of the... No, uh, Navy <laughs> SEALs, uh, you know, right. elite uh, naval warriors. Yep, all right. Um, and... An F-14 Tomcat, you might pull 10 Gs, okay? So this is being very hard on the people that had to use those boats, so they're looking for a more uh, uh, absorbent boat. Mm -hmm. And through the uh, University of Maine Advanced Engineered Wood Composite Center, which works on uh, bridges and all kinds of neat stuff, and Hodgson Brothers, they partnered up, and uh, they've built this carbon Kevlar composite, which is uh, multiple layers of carbon with a foam core and an outer layer of carbon, I'm um, sorry, of Kevlar, 50% stronger and slightly lighter than the aluminum. And again, uh, this is all done to reduce slamming. They uh, launched the prototype just a little while ago down to East Booth Bay, and off they go. This could lead to as many as uh, $200 million worth of boats to be built in the future, perhaps hmm. in Maine. Could be a slam dunk. Oh, oh we've done it again. Uh, so anyway... Slamming, though, I, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about some of these modern composites, where whether they really work out to be as good in reality as they are in design. I'd like to know what the slamming factor is of the boat that they have built before we would go too crazy about that one. I still like, if you're going to make composites, make them with wood. There's know? the whole romance of the wood boat thing, and, and what I think uh, people don't appreciate uh, enough is what's cool about wooden boats is they absorb vibration. Mm -hmm. Um, my my favorite example, a wooden lobster boat or a totally fiberglass lobster boat, all gel-coated on the inside. Um, well, you can hose it out, but it's like working in a drum. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not the vibration through your body, but through your ears. And, and uh, that wood boat absorbs a lot more of those vibrations. Speaking of the Navy, they were enjoined by a judge in California to limit their sonar testing off the coast. Um, this is not banned. It's been... Uh, sort of proscribed to within uh, 12 nautical miles they can't. They have to expand their uh, range to 2,200 yards from 1,000 yards if they find any marine mammals in the water. Uh, there are a lot more uh, little things they have to do about monitoring stuff, but uh, uh, like I say, Navy has been enjoined against using their strong sonar, which puts a noise into the ocean, which is, just doesn't exist in nature. Oh, yeah. And That's... tends to apparently disturb nature quite a bit. It, they found a lot of trouble with finding dead whales to prove the fact is that most species of whales sink when they die, so the proof is on the bottom. But there are, have been a few beachings where they found some serious uh, hemorrhaging of the brains and the eardrums, and they can only attribute it to sonar. Pretty interesting. Here's another one, which uh, we'll get away from the Navy now and get into the cruise line business. There's a new bill in Congress that is put uh, up yes. to... Uh, Make new requirements for foreign flag cruise ships operating between Maine ports. And this comes uh, important to Maine because Bar Harbor, uh, what, $93 million, I operating think. Operating anywhere in the country. Actually. Anywhere in the country. Bar Harbor, Portland, uh, got a lot of uh, cruise ship visits they do now, and mm -hmm. it's a big part of the local economy in the summer. So anyway, this is a bill put in by a fellow who is trying to help the Norwegian Cruise Lines, which is a U.S.-flagged uh, cruise line, and they are facing competition in Hawaii, and what they want is for their competitors, foreign flag vessels, to have to spend more time in foreign ports in between U.S. ports, mm -hmm. which would also apply to ships coming to Bar Harbor on their way from Halifax to Bermuda sort of thing, which happens all the time, and uh, could kill, in some ways, the uh, cruise ship business in uh, the state of Maine, which is estimated at $24 million annually. So, going through the Congress right now, and again, somebody is interested in something that, which may not suit anything else. There's an old story. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how politicians can seem so misguided sometimes. Yep. We have, um, no, I don't either. One, I was going to say one more item, but I think we... Oh, we got, well, I got a, I got a bunch more stuff. Right. Phone's oh, yeah. ringing, too. What are we doing? Uh, I do have one more item. The uh, It's an important one. Tomorrow, if you uh, are connected at all with the lobster fishery, there is going to be a hearing in Augusta at 1 o'clock on um, 
removing some fish dams or open, actually opening up fish dams on the St. Croix River and about 10 years ago um, on a misguided belief that the alewives were uh, overwhelming smallmouth bath up, up way up the St. Croix River. They put, closed the fish dams so the alewives couldn't migrate anymore. Uh, they found out that they were wrong, and so now they're trying to just open the dams up, which uh, the fish ladders up, which would be a minimal cost. And uh, it seems to be going to be having, should have some good effect because the alewife population has gone way down on that river, and that's that's the source of bait for lobstering. Ah, it is all tied together. Here's another lobstering story. Maine lobstermen have just uh, started to be required to report what they do all the time, and what they're doing is sampling 10% of all lobster fishermen at random, and they have to uh, report very closely every day how many traps, what you find in them, where are they. Um, lobstermen hate this. I mean, they hate it. There's always the tension between uh, the state regulations and the lobstermen, the science people and the lobstermen, and uh, they are notoriously close, uh, you know, very guarded about their their uh, local knowledge, their proprietary information, which makes yeah. them able to make a living. And I'm telling you what, um, this is not going over big, but. In all other states, it is a requirement, and in all other fisheries, it is a requirement. So mm-hmm. the lobstermen are, you know. Well, part of it, too, is just the physical uh, hardship of having to write down when you're going from one trap to the next what what the last trap was and all these forms of little splots you have to figure out while you're driving your boat to the next place. <laughs> Interviewed uh, Corporal Brian Smith, United States Marine Corps. He got wounded in Fallujah, and I says, uh, what, what are Marines, uh, you know, what's the worst thing about being a Marine? Paperwork, he says. <laughs> yeah. Fishermen, Marines, same thing. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Speaking of, uh, let's see, uh, the Morris Company is putting, uh, has got an order for a 52-foot day sailor. 52-foot day sailor. It's kind of like oxymoron, isn't it? Wow. Like, They've uh, really scored big with their 36-foot day sailor, and that went over so big. They've, they've sold, uh, I think, probably over 40 of those 36-footers now. And sort of genius marketing, I think, like the Hinkley Jet Boat. This is um, a, it's a, sort of a Harishoff-inspired design, rectangular cabin windows, very easy to sail. Doesn't look complicated because most of the lines are hidden under the deck, mm-hmm. and uh, you can't stand up in the 36. But the 42 and the 52, uh, you'd be hard pressed to call it a day sailor if you were downstairs. So uh, they've got their first order from a customer who already has a 42 footer, and that you know, and <laughs> so it goes. And uh, so how's the economy where you live? You know, right? And uh, you know, that's that's uh, boat building is very healthy on the coast of Maine, you know, and that's one of our big points around boat talk as well as education. And here's a story here about a uh, uh, sea captain from Thomaston, Mike Flanagan, and uh, he's involved with an outfit called, uh, hmm, yeah, it's right here somewhere, a private training company anyway, uh, TRL, I'll find it in a second here. What they want to do is uh, kind of a vocational program, get high school students from Maine out on commercial ocean-going ships as kind of vocational education, mm-hmm. try to steer them into a seafaring job um, and education. And as they say here, uh, these jobs pay very well. There are terif- terrific benefits that go with them. And uh, says Captain Mike Flanagan, I can almost guarantee a job to every Maine high school student who successfully completes the training. Wow. Yeah, and like I say, isn't that interesting in these times? <laughs> so, and we're all in favor of education uh, around around uh, the maritime mm-hmm. issues, no matter what it is. So, yep. Somebody uh, on the phone? We are ready to dive into marine archaeology. Oh, let's get to it. Why not? Okay. We have, um, um, I believe he's from Mountain Desert Island, a local boy, uh, Franklin Price, who has now gone on to be a marine archaeologist. And Franklin is on the line going to talk about some local Underwater Archaeological Spots. Welcome to Boat Talk, Franklin. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. Well, good Fra- to have you. Franklin, can I share something with you right up front that I've uh, been reading up on archaeology? Again, I uh, come across in the library the journal, the bulletin of the Maine Archaeological Society. Had an article in it by you entitled, uh, yeah, I got it right here too. Anyway, it's entitled, uh, A New Submerged Prehistoric Site and Other Fishermen's Reports Near Mount Desert Island. And that got my attention. There are three articles in that uh, journal, and yours by far was uh, the most readable. The others were very scientific. Yours was very entertaining. That caused us to find you and, and get you on the phone. I've been studying up on archaeology a little bit, and I found this quote 
from uh, the Archaeology of New Hampshire, uh, just published 2006. Marine archaeology is unquestionably the most exciting subfield of archaeological archaeology today. It is, quote, the new frontier. Kind of makes you like a cross between Indiana Jones and Aqualung or something, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, it's, it, it, it is very interesting. I think there, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of discoveries happening in, in underwater now that just because of the inaccessibility, and, and it, it is getting more accessible all the time. And in prehistoric, it's, it's, it's much more recent that we're finding out all sorts of new things about where people may have been. Okay, Franklin, um, let's back up um, time-wise, as it were. I, I was surprised to learn that um, eight, ten thousand years ago that the sea level around here was so much lower. Why don't you uh, explain what was going on there then and why we're working with so many submerged sites now? Well, the, uh, when the glaciers retreated, uh, it's pretty complicated. When the glaciers retreated, they had been pushing the land down you know, with their weight. And um, although so much water was in the ice, they had been pushing the land down, so the water was, was where it is now to even a little bit higher. It wound up going all the way up to Millinocket. Then uh, as, the, as they retreated, uh, it let loose all that weight on the land, and the land popped up. Uh, it was called an isostatic rebound. And then the water went offshore to what's now about 200 feet at, at the low stand, which is the lowest point. And since then, as the glaciers have been melting, it's been rising. And people have been dealing with that rise and with the changing coastline because the first people coming into Maine came in right on the heel of the glaciers. So they were a little bit further offshore than we are today. Yes, they, would, they were further offshore. And places that are 200 feet now of water would have been river channels or, or, um, or bays or inlets, but they were offshore. I mean, you could walk all the way out to Black Island from, you know, from Bass Harbor. Yeah, now... Um, what was found off of the end of Mount Desert Island on, underwater there, and, and uh, who found it? Uh, where did they find it? And... Well, uh, there's been very, various things found. Uh, the article that I wrote about a, a fisherman named David Farley dragged up three artifacts, uh, and, and uh, another fisherman named Stan Wass was interested in artifacts, so he's holding on to them now. And these artifacts uh, date from about seven to 9,000 years ago at thereabouts, and um, there was a, a, a chip, what would have been sort of like an axe and an adze, uh, a, a gouge that was used for woodworking and a projectile point. And uh, at the time, that would have been, where they found them would have been a, a, a hill, a slight crest or a hillside or, or a beach. And the cobbles, there, there's cobbles at this site uh, indicating that it was a, a prehistoric beach. So as the sea level rose, it formed beaches and even formed cobbles in some areas because uh, it wasn't an, an, a it wasn't an exact gradual curve thing. There were there were sort of fits and starts as as the sea level rose. In some places, beaches were better formed than others. And it seems uh, one theory is, is that they used these uh, the, the Native Americans used these beaches uh, as landing sites, and that's where some some of these submerged sites are being found. Alan, you've uh, been over to Stan's house and held these things in your hand. If you brought them up in a scallop drag, would you recognize them immediately as prehistoric tools? Well, the point, I think, probably would, because that shows quite a bit of, of uh, tooling to it. But the other two items, uh, the ads and the stone chisel, uh, being a carpenter, I was really intrigued by the stone chisel, because when you put it in your hand, it feels like it's a perfect stone chisel. It's got a real sharp edge on one end and a nice rounded handle end on the other. It's... Amazing piece of work. And uh, while I was at Stan's, I actually took a picture of those and have posted it on the Boat Talk website. So if you go to boattalk.org and go to the little uh, thing on the right-hand side that says Dragging Up Relics, you can see a picture of those three articles. Very cool. Like I say, uh, you know, may or may or not look like rocks, you know, <laughs> and covered, covered with a little uh, coral uh, deposit that grows on stuff underwater. Um, this stuff isn't just all that easy to spot. Now, my reading tells me that um, pe things from this area uh, of time come as sort of individual finds as, as opposed to, uh, let's say we were digging on something from the 1700s. We would, we would find everything in sight there. So uh, what does this tell us about who those people were, Franklin, and, and what their life was like? Well, this particular site's intriguing because it's three artifacts from the same area, which is only the second 
known submerged site in the state that's being labeled a, a submerged site per se. But I mean, you, you, well, you know that they're woodworking. Uh, you know that they're they're using the, that that adds as some sort of an axe for something. Uh, the projectile point, I mean, it, it was probably functional and it may have uh, it, it may have been ceremonial. I, I don't know enough about the uh, uh, prehistoric artifacts projectile points from that period at, the, at this time uh, because my training's in underwater uh, doing historical work and I'm learning as I go about the the, pre, the prehistory. So I don't know enough about that particular point, but it it tells us those things. It tells us that they were there. Uh, the location tells us that they were probably on the south-facing shoreline which is consistent with the uh, land sites that they found prehistorically. And um, it, al- it, also, uh, it also tells us that, uh, well, at it, it, the Cobbled Beach, it tells us that they were near a Cobbled Beach, and some of the other finds that have been found uh, in the area were also, near co- were also on cobbled, submerged Cobbled Beaches or near submerged Cobbled Beaches because the scalp draggers indicated finding cobbles in their drags. So these are things that may help us know where other sites may be we may be able to provide a model but it's a big ocean as you know it's this, this won't be very easy to find and you can't see the bottom very easy <laughs> no no now uh when did the first people get to maine well these it, things are like uh you've you've uh, dated them as being uh, more or less seven thousand years old or so when when did the first people get here well these are as is at least seven thousand, maybe maybe more, because of the sea level line. Uh, they could be as late as I, I would imagine, about eighty six hundred or nine thousand. But this uh, people got here. The the um, it was about twelve thousand years ago that the ice sheets retreated. So people were here uh, immediately after that in what they would call the Paleo Indian period. So they were here at least. Uh, 12,000 years ago, 12, 11,000 years ago, people have been here. The, from my reading again, the Paleo period was kind of like um, Arctic tundra, retu- retreating glacier, you know, and they followed in on the end of that. These things date from what archaeologists call the Archaic period, yes. 8 to uh, 10,000 years, uh, eight, 8 to 10,000 years ago. Or, I'm sorry, 8,000 8, to about 1,000 a, a uh, years ago. And... Uh, Characterized, it says here, by restricted wandering, hunter-gatherers living in a boreal woodland uh, going towards a deciduous forest, no agriculture, but they had uh, come up with the, how do you say it, atlatl? Atlatl, yes. Yeah, which is a way to throw a projectile and kill things. Yep. Yeah. I'm just fascinated by what what was their life like last night, you know? February, it was kind of cold. <laughs> and, they, and there were differences in temperature that happened where at one point it actually warmed up almost to the climate of Virginia now. Wow. So it changed quite a bit. And then you also have to re- realize they were dealing with climate, we're dealing with climate change, and, uh, and they were dealing with climate change. I mean, they, they dealt with watching the sea level sometimes rise quickly, sometimes slowly, but they adapted to this. The, ad- the environment changed, they adapted to that. I mean, so th- it, this is about ad- human adaptation, you know, the, all this archaeology, this prehistoric submerged stuff. It really brings out up the concept of uh, human adaptation to, to sea level rise, which is very, a very timely thing right now. Big time. To stray a little bit towards that, reading again, I uh, read of this uh, big lake in the middle of North America that used to occupy, and again, uh, ret- uh, you know, melting uh, glaciers, produced this uh, big body of water, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, mm-hmm. Minnesota, I mean, probably the biggest lake on earth, they say. And uh, they say that 12,000 years ago, it, it let go. Um, an ice and rubble dam they called the Superior Lobe, I guess, let go. And part of it drained down the Mississippi Valley. The rest went out towards the St. Lawrence and carved that out in a couple of weeks, they say. <laughs> dumping all that fresh water into the North Atlantic, which depends on the circulation of water, really affects the weather on the planet. And that produced another, uh, another ice age, apparently. You know, and those people, like I say, followed a few years after that. Now, that did, it just fascinates me try to try to imagine it. It would have been very different. I mean, they've discovered mammoth uh, submerged, one submerged mammoth bone uh, in, the, in our area near Cranberry Island. So, huh. and, you know, that's pretty amazing to think that was dry. There were mammoth there. There were people there. Hmm. That's amazing. So, no doubt these people were going on the water, too. Have you seen any or heard of any sort of uh, any boat-related 
Did they artifacts. have an excellent question? Did they have any boats? Well, you would imagine that they that they would. Skin there, boats. There, there, ha- there aren't any. There haven't been any extremely prehistoric finds of mm-hmm. of boats because of what they they would have been made of wood. And our soils are so acidic that uh, that wooden and organics have a hard time surviving. Uh, but uh, you would. You, I mean, I would assume that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, there are. Uh, in shell middens, there are some shell middens that have have uh, various fish bones in it. That would uh, one would assume they had to go out into the into the actually into the ocean to retrieve them. Right. The job so. of an archaeologist, sort of like a crime scene investigator, them CSI people on TV trying to intuit what happened from from the leavings of the scene. You know, how did you first get interested in, in archaeology, Franklin? Uh, I've always been interested in history, but I was in. Um, and I had, a, had sort of toured with the idea of getting an MA in archaeology, but I, I was living in Spain, and I volunteered at the site. It, it was a Roman graveyard, and uh, that was that's what really hooked me into archaeology. We I worked on that site for a couple of months, and um, it was unbelievable to find glass bottles from the Roman times. They had put candles at their feet, coins on their mouth, and we're finding all these things. It was unbelievable. Wow. Now you've also been a fisherman, too. Yes, I, I uh, spent five seasons lobstering out of Bass Harbor with Wayne Rich. And that's sort of how this project came along. And a big part of this project, here's my favorite uh, little part of your uh, uh, piece from the Archaeological uh, Society bulletin here. You uh, surveyed local, local fishermen and divers for their local knowledge on, on marine wrecks and underwater sites. It says here that although primarily conducted in person, some of the interviews needed to be completed by phone when a face-to-face meeting could not be arranged. Overall, the knowledge of the informants was astounding. Even over the phone, some interviewees could trace the depths of the seafloor in their heads to lead Price to the site locations as he followed a nautical chart. After a lifetime on the water, they literally know the seafloor as one knows his or her own backyard. They do. The, the, that is the thing that's so wonderful about this, uh, about the, both this this uh, project, uh, the prehistoric project, and an, and uh, historic research that's going on at the same time, is that it's using. I'm trying to use as much, uh, use the local people as much as I can, the local fishermen specifically as much as I can, because there hasn't been a lot of of concerted effort done in this field talking to the local fishermen about what they know. And they know a lot, and they've been unbelievably helpful. And then the whole thing started, I'm talking to a specific fisherman at his house, a friend of mine, Stanley Black, and that, and he suggested that I go see these artifacts. So it's all sprung out of just talking it over one stormy day. So Now, okay, you're a fisherman, and you uh, dredge up a slate point and a little ads and, and uh, you know, in your uh, gouge and your uh, scallop dredge there. You take it home, it's yours, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that brings up an interesting point. It is, but there, the the questions of ownership are a little bit murky in, in that uh, respect. But it, it would be, as far as I'm aware, it would be. But there is, and as it's a part of the story of archaeology. There's a great tension, isn't there, or some tension anyway, between uh, avocational archaeologists, as they say, the interested fishermen, and, and pros. Well... There is, but it's more going and looting a site specifically to go get artifacts. In this case, it's different. Somebody's dragging the seafloor. They happen to get an artifact. And um, why I would, con- why I would, uh, would uh, encourage people to come forward with these artifacts is that they're ma- th- these artifacts are, are what has given us, uh, let's see, one, there's six, or six areas, recovery areas, in, in around the Blue Hill Frenchman Bay region, and they're all known only because fishermen came forward and said, I found this in this place, and I found this in another place. And, and it's made a huge contribution uh, to science. It is kind of a yin-yang thing, though, because once you or somebody discovers some artifacts from a certain site, you kind of would like to protect it from there on and not have anybody else be dragging over it or picking or whatever. And the site we're talking about has been scalloped, dragged, and dived just, you know, forever. Hard, yes. well, that, but that's the, you, well, that's the thing. I mean, I'm not out to... My end intention isn't to do that. Um, mine is to gather as much information as I can about about all of these places. 
Well, I think partly too, you need to, or, or we are trying to spread the fact that it's a, it's a, a shared resource, these sites. Yeah. Are, and uh, they're not just there for the picking. Well, definitely, yes. I mean, it, it, it isn't legal to dive a, a shipwreck site and pull anything off of it. And it, that's, I mean, a lot of people think it is, but it, but it actually isn't. So, and then when when that happens, then all those artifacts are out of context, and you can't learn from from them. You you just it's very difficult to piece together what happened because we we're dealing with so little material culture that survives in a wreck. Uh, I'll use shipwreck as an example in a wrecking event. That to do that would would throw everything out of context and damage it. And and once you do that, you it's a. I mean, even archaeology is destructive. I mean, once you excavate and recover things, you can't do it again. Uh, so you have to do it properly the first time around. Interesting. Well, we're still talking about archaic tools here, but we'll get to uh, treasure ships and darbloons in a few minutes, maybe, yeah. there. But we also contacted our friend Diver Ed um, when we uh, found Ed out Monet, about the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And um, our thought was not to uh, to plunder the site, but what to, to uh, sort of more or less document, or at least partially document what was really there just for uh, the shared interest. Yeah, we talked about going out there. The weather, mind you, hasn't been really yeah, good for yeah. that. But. And Diver Ed, uh, Eddie Monet, uh, was one of your sources for your survey, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah. And he knows a lot about the bottom. Yeah, he does. Um, we also contacted by, uh, what was the fellow's name, Alan Stefan Clayson? Uh, Stefan Clayson. Clayson, yes, yeah. Stephen Clayson, yes. Uh, who's with NOAA, and he urged us to great caution on uh, talking about this so that uh, you know the site could be preserved but at the same time you're relying on people's local knowledge and, yes. and it needs to be publicized well yes and and I mean I think I think uh, to, to know that this sort of research is going on is is what we, what it would be great to get out there to know that that uh, I mean it's, it's no exaggeration to say that that the skull of draggers contribution to science is enormously significant at this point to prehistoric uh, archaeology, wow. uh, to where we know, uh, I mean, uh, as far as I know, there isn't anywhere in New England with more known submerged recovery areas. Very interesting. Now, let's get to treasure ships and, uh, you know, uh, like I say, archaeological uh, uh, remains of ships and, and uh, treasure on the bottom. Um, the Penobscot expedition is pretty famous for, uh, you know, the uh, greatest... Uh, some say American naval disaster till Pearl Harbor happened right here in Castine in 1779. The Penobscot River just, uh, you know, littered with those ships, literally, and old cannons and stuff. If you come upon one at low tide, you can't just take it home. Um, you couldn't legally take it home. People I mean, have, though, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, I mean, I imagine they have. I have. I don't know specifically... Of an instance, but I imagine I, know, I, I have heard rumor of things happening. Now I heard you're spending the day cleaning a cannon yourself. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yes, yes. Today uh, we're cleaning uh, cannons from uh, a site off North Carolina that that we believe is uh, Blackbeard's flagship, which is Queen Anne's Revenge, and um, we're bringing the site up completely. It's uh, full recovery, uh, excavating it, documenting it, and bringing it up. And now, and I work in the conservation laboratory in the winter. Uh, and we today we're cleaning one of the cannons. Gold. Let's talk about gold, Franklin. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a the gold on this side is is more just a uh, it's just another artifact because it's it's dust. It was scattered around. Somebody may have dropped a bag of gold dust. That you, they used to use it as currency at the time. It was like change. Huh. You could weigh it out a, a certain amount of it to pay for things, and uh, it's scattered all across the site. And most of it seems to be, or at least across the the stern end of the site, most of it seems to be um, uh, from. Uh, it seems to be very similar in, in its in the way it looks. So it might have been from a similar location. Most of it, but some of it's very different. So, but it isn't. Uh, there aren't any doubloons or anything aboard. There so weren't any. They would have left because they were. They uh, ran into a sandbar and started to sink and got stuck, and uh, they had enough time to to get a lot of their their um, ah. valuables off. You had to figure there was. There were there were about three hundred of them, and they had to stuff them all into one sloop so they couldn't take everything. Interesting. There's also, for instance, the um, I believe 1715 uh, Spanish treasure fleet that went down off the coast of Florida that people are are recovering yet today, and you know saucers of gold and and uh, big old Aztec stuff and and uh, literally billions and billions of dollars worth of stuff that they are they're in it for the money, aren't they? 
Well, some it, Florida does allow some of that, or did allow. I don't believe they're issuing any new permits now, uh, because there was a, there's different way, ways of viewing it. Some people view it as that they're they're recovering these artifacts and putting them back into the stream of commerce. But uh, I would view it as a, as a as a tragedy because they usually don't use uh, archaeological techniques and all of the information usually in a in one of these these uh, treasure hunts is lost. They destroy contacts to get at the gold. So. They dive and pick up all they can, and then they they suck up the rest. The big vacuum cleaner sort of Sometimes, thing. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we use dredges on our site as well, but it's a slow excavation, and we run them through screens and and various uh, devices to get everything that we can can out of it, and we we know the context, and that, that's what's different. And it's I think it's unfortunate what goes on in Florida, but. How deep is the uh, uh, Blackbeard wreck that you're working on, and, and what's the site like there? It's uh, about 22 to 28 feet of water, so that's very nice. It uh, You can get a lot of dives in per day. Uh, visibility can be up to about 17 feet and down to about 6 inches. Uh, luckily, we have, the, we have our techniques up so that we can work essentially blind. It will still work if the visibility is poor, but... Uh, we, we, the only thing that drives us off the site is weather. And it's going to be kind of labor-intensive. Who does all the diving? Well, the, the North Carolina Underwater Archaeology Branch has a, a fairly large group of people, and we do the diving, and scientific divers from other agencies will, and the universities will come visit on occasion. But the core group is uh, the North Carolina Underwater Archaeology Branch, which is near Wilmington, North Carolina. They're based. And while we do the excavation, they're the largest underwater archaeology branch in the country they have the most people when that happens you know, because we bring in people stefan happened to mention that you're in the process of a developing a volunteer dive group to explore and document uh, main sites yes as part of the NOAA project we're trying to do that and, and that may also branch out into its uh, there's a lot of overlapping projects but i would like we are in the process of trying to do that yes is there any contact uh, information yet well, you could get a hold of me uh, at Franklin H. Price, all lowercase, at Hotmail right now. dot com would be the best way to to get a hold of me. But I will be certainly uh, putting this up in in uh, dive shops around. Mm-hmm. Well, let us know too when it's ready to roll. Yes, because the, you, since just just the, with just the involvement of the fishing community and uh, over the. You know, in total, I think now I've talked to about 67 individuals. There's such an enormous wealth of information that that uh, that we have to conduct archaeology with now. I think and if we bring in divers as well, it'll just make it more an ownership issue. Where you know, it's the fishermen's, it and it's the divers, and it's everyone's resource. Right. It's everyone's history. Right. It's like you just can't pull into a park and take whatever you see. You know, it's a. It's a shared thing. And it's our state. And it's, yes. And it, and it really is uh, newsworthy on a, on a national scale. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a call-in show, too. I think so maybe we have piqued some interest of some uh, people who may like to hope so. throw out some questions, too. I'm kind of fascinated. The number to call is 1-866-625-9378. I was uh, surprised and impressed to see the last week's Mount Desert Islander had a feature article, a whole page, with a lot of pictures about you, called Treasure Hunter, All the Glitters is Not Gold for Underwater Archaeologists. Uh, pretty uh, good-looking, uh, you know, action photos here. <laughs> Franklin all rigged up to dive. Uh, you you mentioned that the uh, piece about Queen Anne's Revenge has been published in a magazine, too. Is, how could anybody get a hold of that? Well, I believe it, it would be at a, at a larger newsstand. I'm not sure if the issues at the newsstands now or not, or whether it was just a subscription that's been sent out, and it'll be a bit. But it's in the latest edition of, uh, of Archaeology magazine. Uh, they came out last fall and took some photos and, and did a piece on us. Findable online, perhaps? <laughs> not it, every, you know, not every newsstand has uh, has archaeology magazine. Oh so, yes, yeah. I mean, I would imagine you probably have to go to Ellsworth for that. Maybe. We do have a phone call. Let's let's go to this and see what we have here. Good morning and welcome to Boat Talk. Hey, this is Mike from Bar Harbor. Hi, Mike. Hey, I got a uh, couple questions. So I was wondering about archaeology in the and uh, sea caves. I know that the water level used to be lower. And I was wondering about uh, 
there was any sea caves that were being investigated for signs of past life, and if there was any uh, chambers perhaps underneath the water that used to be above the water. <laughs> anyway. Well, go ahead, Franklin. Well, there certainly are, uh, but mostly in Europe. Okay. Some very interesting things have been found in Europe with sea caves. In fact, I believe it was within the last 10 or 12 years they found a cave. Some divers found a cave, and it had paintings in it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, was, it was amazing. But from what little um, terrestrial archaeology that I've, that I've uh, been involved with in Maine that, that had a prehistoric component, it seems that, that, that the, the people who lived uh, those thousands of years ago in Maine didn't seem to use the caves very much. Uh-huh. And I don't know if that would translate to the submerged environment. I, I don't know. And I don't think anyone's done any real archaeology prehistorically investigating caves specifically in the state that I'm aware of. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it'll be hard because they're, they'd be covered with seaweed and mussels and yeah. barnacles. And or filled in with sediment over the over the centuries, a substantial amount, I would imagine. But but it's a good idea. I had the same idea, and I had the same question when I started to do terrestrial archaeology in Maine. I had the exact same question. Yeah, I keep th- trying to. I keep thinking about some cave uh, up in the hills in Acadia or something that you know a rock has fallen and covered the entrance or something like that that we just haven't found yet. Yeah, as, far, as far as I know, uh, no one's been looking into that in the submerged context. You right. see, see yourself as a caveman type, Mike? Uh, <laughs> not really. I mean, it's hard um, enough finding things underwater. Now we've got to go in a cave, too. Uh, wow. Yeah. Well, I was thinking it'd be protected by uh, scallop draggers and stuff like that. Oh, this is true. Currents could be a little tricky in a cave. I'd be a little scared, but... Yeah, I, I wouldn't mean, go in it. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, thanks for calling this morning, yeah, Mike. Yeah, Thanks. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. one 625 we got about 20 minutes left. We're doing boat talk this morning, and we got Franklin Price on the uh, line from North Carolina. He's an underwater archaeologist, found some old stuff off of uh, the end of Mount Desert. And like I say, we're just uh, fascinated by who those people were about seven to 9,000 years ago, what their life was like, and how we can all figure it out from now. Franklin, anything else uh, we've left out here this morning you can think of? Anything you'd like to throw out? Well, just that uh, that I'm going to hopefully be getting more funding to do some more of the fisherman interviews this summer, and that um, I guess it well, I mean, it's in the Islander the the contact information. But if anybody has dragged up a prehistoric artifact, I'd love to hear about it. Excellent. And uh, I, my email is Franklin H Price, all lowercase at hotmail dot com. Franklin, can't thank you enough this morning. I know you got some students in the lab, like, say, uh, trying to do some, what, reverse electrolysis on the old cannon? Yes, so there will, we'll be doing some electrolysis on the, on the cannon. After, well, we have to clean it first, so we use air scribes to, to take the concretion off of it. Very carefully, I assume. Yes, yes, and because wow. there are a lot of, uh, in fact, right now I'm trying to get something off that has some sort of line in it, some kind of rope or maybe a textile, and, we, and it's hard to get the, that removed without damaging it. So mm. that's what we're doing now. What are these morning. cannons made out of? Iron. Iron. Yes. Mm. They're iron cannons. Likely, um, we have a quite, they're from various places. It's, it's, it's much like, um, like just because you have a car made in Korea doesn't mean you're Korean. You no, know, we have cannons from Sweden, uh, and, but it's not a Swedish ship. Uh, most likely not a Swedish ship. We have cannons from Sweden, cannons from England, you know, and, and, and we've been able to to uh, identify a couple of them all the way back to the foundry. But, but yeah, so, hmm. so finding, it's interesting. Finding something like a piece of rope there, is, that must get you all excited, doesn't it? Oh, definitely, definitely. We found some, some pipe stems last year in the middle of it with a tinderbox that somehow had stuck to the cannon and been concreted. Blackbeard, when did that ship go down? 1718. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I like the name too. <laughs> Queen and Anne's do you know, Revenge. Do you know what the story behind the name is? Well, it was it was likely because of Queen Anne's War, mm-hmm. and then Blackbeard was probably involved in that to some respect. Politically uh, on one side, yes, 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 and because and they loved the name Revenge in at the time oh, uh, in piracy. True. There that's was Revenge. Uh, there were there were two other revenges, and there were adventures uh, in Revenge, Queen Anne's Revenge. Those were. There was only one Queen Anne's Revenge that I know of, but Revenge and Adventure were good re, uh, rechristened names for pirate vessels. 
Join the Brotherhood, live a short but exciting life, Yeah, is what they said. Yeah, I bet they did yeah. as well. Wow. Franklin, once again, we can't thank you enough this morning. Well, thank you very much. It's yep. been great to, uh, to uh, be on your show. All right. Thank you, Franklin. All right. Have a nice day. Thanks. Yo, the phone number here. one 866 Most anything that uh, crosses your navel will probably uh, pass for something to talk about on this show. Now, I got a couple other things I'd like to get out there. Um, read a couple of really interesting books. Uh, one I'd highly, highly recommend. It's called World Voyagers. Phil Shelton and Amy Wood, a uh, boat builder and, and a veterinarian from down to Georgetown, Maine. This is the movie? No. Okay. Uh, built a, uh, built a Colin Archer-type uh, gaff-headed catch and uh, sailed it around the world for about three years. Dream. And wrote this extraordinarily personal book. And where oh, some of their yes. dreams don't come true, and they learn some different things they didn't expect. Yeah. And again, a very, very intimate Pretty uh, account in- of sailing around the world. They like to say that it's not like a lot of the other cruising parts that leave the sucky part. The, all the other cruising stories, they say, leave the sucky parts out. They put them right in. Mm. And uh, World Voyagers, uh, Shelton and Wood, highly recommended, brand new, self-published. I uh, read another one called Fo- To Follow the Water, Dallas Murphy. It's uh, sort of layman's oceanography. Boy, that just uh, gave me a new picture of the ocean. And mind you, it's mostly ocean on the planet, you know. And it all uh, depends on circulation and things. Uh, for instance, the Gulf Stream brings the warm water north. Well, it can't just all go one way and not come back. Everything on the planet goes around mm-hmm. in circles, big circles, little circles. Uh, everything's circling here. For instance, uh Water in the Arctic uh, and Antarctic regions is cold and dense, and, and uh, it sinks. And so under the Gulf Stream going north, there's a big current going south on the bottom. Think that uh, there's life in the deep, deep ocean, and there's oxygen in all that water that gets used up, and, and it can't be replenished just by waves and stuff. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing's mixed up, and yeah. uh, again, it's uh, just to follow the water, very fascinating. Phone's go. ringing quite yes. a bit here. We got. Oh, if we don't get to talk about the outlaw sea, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> let's answer the phone. Okay. Good morning. You're on Boat Talk. Welcome to Boat Talk. Yeah. Hi, Al. Uh, Johnny. How you doing? Hey, Johnny. Uh, quick question. You uh, going back to the uh, beginning of the show? You were talking about the uh, um, the rules about the sonar testing that the Navy's doing. Mm-hmm. And the last that I had heard was that Bush stepped in, and even though there was a law, or I, I can't remember if it was a law or the, the court said, no, you shouldn't be doing this, he overrode all that and saying in, in a time of, uh, of war and, you know, terrorism and everything, we've, we've got to uh, do these tests. Um, no, I think you're right, but I think this, this, uh, the uh, law that Mike, or the decision that Mike was talking about, was overruling the overruling, or at least just for this specific area off of California. Yeah, and this is just Southern California, apparently. Okay, and that, that just happened? Just uh, Bangor Daily weeks ago. News, uh, January 4th is okay. where I have this from. Okay. Well, then, I I think since then, what happened, that that Bush came back and overrode the overrode. (laughs) Overrode the overrode? Um, Are we still safe, John? (laughs) Are we still safe? No, no, no. We're uh, we're, we're not. Uh, But uh, then the next question is, is who, you know, which which, uh, terrorists are... uh, Yeah, making uh, silent submarines. submarines. Yeah, but don't, you know... Something yeah. else to worry yeah, about. Yeah, I don't think it's real big on the Al Qaeda sh- building list of <laughs> things to make. No, no. But I was just, I, you know, I just wasn't certain if I if I missed something. You know, I know this was a this was a uh, hopscotch kind of thing. Uh, they say uh, no, he says yes, and I just didn't know if you had any other new information and if it was rescinded, if it was blocked, or well, if he just you may you may have the the newest information. I right think there. I think he squashed every everything and uh, it's a go again. So. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, I'll keep looking. Well, thank you, Johnny. All right. Good listening. Take care. one 625 9378 And uh, what John just called about is a fairly good lead-in to uh, something I've been trying to get out for a couple months here, another book I read. It's called uh, The Outlaw Sea. Somebody else on the phone? Yes, we do. Let's talk to him. We'll get to The Outlaw Sea okay, in a minute. Okay, good, good. Well, good morning. You're on Boat Talk. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Nope. I think the phone's caller sunk. Not happening. Anyway, glad to talk to you if you call. We always interrupt what we're doing to, to uh, you know, say hello to a keel kicker, as they call them around the boatyard. You know, never never waste the time to talk to people. As far as we're concerned, the phone's ringing again, and 
We wonder if anybody's going to be there. We are doing boat talk this morning. We run it kind of loose, you know, and, and uh, it's all about who shows up according to what happens and stuff. And there is somebody on the phone. Good morning. Good morning. I, uh, I called you a couple months ago from Bristol, England. Graham oh, yes. from Bristol, England. Another you, underwater See, I remember you, buddy. What's Excellent. going on? Here you talk about time archaeology today. Yes, we were as an echo, and I meant to uh, mention that, that uh, you called last June in the June edition of Boat Talk, which might be uh, archived up on the web. And uh, you're an underwater archaeologist yourself, studying in England? Uh, yes, I actually just completed my studies, so oh. I guess you can say I'm a full-fledged archaeologist, but uh, it takes practice to be one of those. How do you feel about Queen Anne's revenge? <laughs> um, Nothing personal. <laughs> uh, it's a great project they're doing down there. Yeah. Um, it was uh, one of our subjects of study, obviously, when I was in school. But, um, yeah, they've, uh, they've got a lot of good info, and it's, I guess there is, um, and not to... Uh, to um, downplay Mr. Mr. Price, Franklin Price, was that Franklin name? Price, yes. I had to get in touch with him about volunteer diving in Maine, but, um, you know, there is some question as to, you know, whether it actually is the Queen Anne's Revenge or not. Um, mm-hmm. But nonetheless, they've found a significant vessel anyhow, so it's, it's at least got that interest. So, Graham, how do you feel about um, fishermen um, dragging up uh, relics and, and reporting or turning them into a archaeologists um well things like uh, you were talking about the you know um projectile heads and things like that um there's not much of a conservation issue you know if they're if they're made of stone um but we're not, lo- you're not losing the context though yes you're losing the context but by the time it's already come up in the in the drag you know the context is lost you know what i mean right right so um I but mean, things think, on the bottom that have been dragged around, who knows where it started out. It could have already been dragged up and thrown overboard a time or two, even. Oh, yeah, any you of know? these, these um, you know, wrecks you find that are on or near drag or bottom are, are strewn with, uh, with trawl nets anyhow. Mm-hmm. So they've, um, been, they've been dragged through time and time again because, of course, that's where the fish are. I believe with the Queen Anne's Revenge, there are issues with the uh, Corps of Engineer has changed the channel and the sand is changing is what I think is yep. happening down there, so... Pretty interesting. Where are you calling from this morning? You were in Bristol, England last no, time. No, I'm, uh, I'm at Lowell's Boat Shop in Amesbury today. Excellent. We, uh, and what are you doing down there? Building boats. Dories. Yep. Yeah, very famous uh, boat shop down there. Yep, we've got a, uh, a pretty significant order for two 18-foot surf dories. And uh, so we're trying to fill that. There's a customer on the West Coast who's got a house in Long Beach and a house in Hawaii. All wood? Wants one in each. Yep, all cedar. They'll never go out of style. No, yeah. these, these are beautiful boats. Uh, the Dory book, John Gardner, is the classic on that. Got stuff about surf dories and Lowell's Boat Shop. Yep, we've heard, uh, if you mention Lowell's, you've been listening to your archives the last couple weeks. And uh, Giffy's mentioned Lowell's a few times. Excellent. Someone called in with a, a bank story, I believe. Wanted you to identify it. Oh, Excellent. Right. Graham, we'd love to talk to you any time about archaeology, uh, dory building, or anything. Yeah, I'll try to get a hold of you on the web here Yeah, with the email. Right. You, uh, I think, hold the record from calling from away from Bristol, England. For oh, I Botox. heard someone called from Australia. Well, actually, that was an email, and they said they were going to be listening, staying up till midnight listening, so that wasn't <laughs> an actual call. But, yeah, where's the other side? Chicago Yacht Club, we got a call from there. When you never, just never know. Them Bodie people, they're kind of nuts, you know. Well, so. now that you're on the, uh, the Internet, yeah. you watch yourself. Yeah. You never know who's going to be listening. There you go. <laughs> good, good advice, hard to take. Yeah, Al-Qaeda is <laughs> starting to make a submarine now. Yeah, uh, thank you, Graham. The phone's ringing, man. Before uh, I go, I want to uh, congratulate Jim Jefferson of uh, Searsmont, Maine, for winning the Toboggan National Championship this past weekend. Ah, uh-huh. in Camden. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, Have a good morning, guys. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Graham. And is the phone ringing yet again? Well, yes. let's answer it and see who's there. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hello. This is Captain Yo in Tremont. Oh, Captain. How you Yo Yo. I've been enjoying your show, and uh, two. Two divergent thoughts that you've mentioned that I put together that perhaps you'd like to share your comments with listeners. One is the archaeology, and the other is the circulation of the oceans. And the question that it raised in my mind is about how all the world's plastic is accumulating in the North Pacific gyre. And if you know anything about that, I'd be interested in hearing your comments. The people Thanks from. A lot. Thank you, Yo. Uh, Yo owns a lovely little schooner called Annie McGee, a little pinky schooner that just breaks my heart, Captain Yo. Anyway, uh, 
the uh, World Voyager people, uh, Amy Amy Wood and uh, Phil Shelton, uh, talk about going through big areas of plastic in the Pacific, and uh, you know it is out there just bobbing around, and it does break down in sunlight, but you know theoretically it lasts forever as well. So, yeah, I'm not really sure if it breaks down or just breaks up into smaller pieces so that smaller animals can ingest it. Well, nothing totally goes away on the planet, does it? Mm, yeah. And again, it all goes around in circles. I'd love to uh, talk more about oceanography, but I'd really like to slam this into the end of boat talk this morning. Another book I read, uh, the To Follow the Water, was about the physical nature of the ocean. And this one was called uh, The Outlaw Sea, William Langwish, who's an uh, Atlantic uh, writer. And uh, this just this blew me away. It's about the administration of the sea, the largest area on Earth, okay, not really owned by anybody. How is it governed? What goes on up, out there? His point is that it's the largest, wildest, least governed piece of the Earth. And there are in, international structures like the uh, International Marine uh, Organization, and they have lots of regulations, but no enforcement. Most flags of convenience have, uh, you know, no inclination or, or expertise to, you know, Liberian flag. What's the government of Liberia care about what's happening on that boat, strictly speaking? Now, the United States of uh, America has 90,000 miles of coastline. We have over 100 ship ports, and we have over 60,000 port calls for different ships coming and going, bringing us basically all our stuff, okay, which is mostly foreign flag vessels. And it says here, uh, the great majority of uh, these vessels are foreign flagged and owned by offshore companies. They're crewed by anonymous sailors, almost all of whom come from troubled parts of the world where America is resented. Corruption is rife and authentic documentation can be easily bought. In terms of meaningful checks, uh, what can you do to a Liberian vessel operated by a Caymans Island company owned by an anonymous Greek captain by an East Block maritime refugee crewed by Indonesians or Chinese? I mean, who are these people, you know? We have a uh, National Vessel Movement Center. It's in West Virginia. Not a seaport location, but <laughs> I guess that could keep it safe. Probably uh, Senator Byrd, you know, he gets mm -hmm. lots of stuff for West Virginia. They uh, look at uh, paperwork there, and they look for anomalies. An anomalies, And uh, they cause the Coast Guard to inspect up to two ships a day. But time is money, and you can't look in any of those containers. They're too tight together. Even if you could take the time to look in them, you can't get in there. So again, from the Outlaw Sea, William Langwish says here that the ocean looks tight in print, much as many increasingly ungovernable nations still do by formal description. The problem, as some insiders will admit in private, is that the entire structure is something of a fantasy, floating free of the realities at sea. Worse, from the point of view of increasingly disillusioned regulators, the documents that demonstrate compliance are used as a facade behind which groups or companies can do whatever they please. Authentic documents are known, uh, you know, you have no need for counterfeit documents. You can, uh, you can do this uh, realistically. And here's a quote from a fellow. He says, on paper, everything will look all right, but in reality, it will not make any difference. And what is a flag of convenience after all? It's an absolute nothing. In the worst case, it's just a commercial company running a registry. Money flows in and certificates flow out. What the U.S. does is, is uh, at the very least, ineffective because, quote, you can get all the paperwork you want, no problem, and it will not help. Now, I worry that it's coming on a boat next time instead of in, a, uh, in an airplane while Grandma's taking her shoes off. Um, these boats, boat or boats, uh, you know, potentially running around the world right now going about their business, building a little, uh, you know, a little history. And the largest man-made... Hate to be really a dead bummer here, but uh, the largest man-made explosion up till Hiroshima was in Halifax Harbor in 1917. Mm -hmm. A French munition ship got smucked by a Norwegian freighter, and it caught on fire and drifted into the dock and blew up. And uh, it sucked all the water out of Halifax Harbor. There was a cubic mile uh, fireball, and Halifax was just absolutely devastated, and thousands of people thousands were killed. Of people yeah. Killed. So anyway, The Outlaw Sea, William Langwish, that just that book shook me up, really and truly did. He wrote another book called American Ground about uh, 
Oh, uh, taking apart the World Trade Center after it came down. He's got another one called in. Uh, it's about the skies, uh, into the skies. I think about the administration of the airspaces too. Boy. And uh, he must so be anyway, fun to hang around. <laughs> that I find very scary. And uh, you know, these boats are out there and and going around. And uh, you know, who's on them? And and uh, what will we do if? Let's put it this way: the last time uh, at nine eleven, we stopped aviation for a little while. If we stop navigation, oh, yeah. Where's your uh, Where's your lettuce from China going to come from? Your prawns from Indonesia? Your Dexter shoes? Your Levi's? You know, it all comes on boats, and I'm telling you, all the stuff that comes from away is on foreign flag vessels. Well, our time has just gone away too. Well, again, I wanted to cram that in to the end of boat talk and alarmist uh, or not. Yeah, it's something to think about. We'll. Uh, I'm sure be following up on that. Wow. Uh, boat talk, again, an embarrassment of riches, man. Uh, you know, the underwater archaeology, the oceanography, the, uh, like I say, the, the law of the sea here, and not enough time to fit it all in. Yeah. Well, stay tuned for Jim Bahoosh coming up next here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 102.9.